Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary and we shall not rest. We are thousands strong to tell the world reverse Roe versus Wade. Welcome to Life After Dobbs. I'm Alexandra DeSanctis, and together with Ryan Anderson, I'm the co-author of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Today, we're talking with Catherine Glenn Foster, president and CEO of Americans United for Life, a preeminent pro-life legal organization. Prior to joining AUL, Catherine spent seven years at Alliance Defending Freedom, and she founded and managed a law practice that focused on issues related to the sanctity of all human life. Catherine has litigated extensively on a variety of life-related issues, and she regularly speaks, writes, and testifies on behalf of pro-life legislation and the pro-life position across the country. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. So uh, could you start out just by telling our listeners a bit about AUL and its history in the pro-life movement? Sure, yeah. You know, we at Americans United for Life, we have a simple mission. It's to advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. Uh, We were America's first national pro-life organization. We were founded two years before Roe v. Wade in 1971, and we were founded by Americans of all ages and backgrounds and beliefs who just shared this common sense understanding of the human person and of constitutional justice. Uh, Our founders were, um, were really animated by by exactly the sort of constitutional vision that the Supreme Court got so wrong in Roe v. Wade. And so we've advocated for the human right to life in every U.S. Supreme Court case since Roe v. Wade, and we were proud to be cited in the final Dobbs decision that did eventually overturn Roe. Um, But we advocate for the human life, uh, the human right to life on the federal and the state and the local levels. We work across all branches of government, and we work with lawmakers who share our mission of advancing and enshrining and upholding the human right to life in all of its fullness, which means not only legal protections and common sense prohibitions against violence, like abortion and outright infanticide and euthanasia and suicide, um, but it also means affirmative protections and provisions for women and for persons who need real care, uh, material care, resources, counseling, financial assistance, job training, um, just whatever it takes to have the capacity to thrive across the whole of a natural life. And so we strive for the day to channel the words of the late Richard John Newhouse when all are welcomed throughout life and protected in law. Amen. Um, That's such a great um, vision, mission statement for, for an organization, such a great mission to be dedicating one's life to. Um, and, and we're going to be circling back um, to AUL in a moment, but I also um, want to give you a chance to say a little bit about yourself um, to listeners. Um, in, in the book that Alexandra and I've written, um, you know, we quote uh, an op-ed that you've written, and I know you've testified um, sharing uh, this story as well. But you know, not all of our listeners will be aware of it, and I don't want to steal any of um, of your story. So that's why I'm, you know, speaking somewhat obliquely about. Um, about the op-ed, but you know there are, are at least two instances um, in your own life um, where the right to life um, ha- has come into play in a very personal way, and I was just wondering if you could you know share a little bit about that uh, with listeners. Absolutely, you know it it really um, at least for me and for so many Americans it. it it really is personal. Um, it was personal for me before it was political. Um, so I, I think the the story that I share most often um, 
is, is a story from back when I was 19 years old. And, um, I got back from winter break, Christmas break at college, um, little, you know, undergrad and, um, and I felt a little under the weather and I went to the student health center and I figured they would just give me some antibiotic. I probably had, you know, some kind of infection or maybe the flu or something. And they said, um, well, just, just let's make sure that you're not pregnant first. And I said, well, why would you do that? <laughs> you know, I'm 19 years old. I think I'm invincible. I thought, why in the world? This is the first time anyone's ever suggested this to me. Um, but I took the test and, um, and it came back positive and, um, and I just, I had no idea how to react. You know, I had grown up in a pro-life home. Um, my best friend in middle school was pro-life, but you know, we just, we didn't talk about really abortion or what abortion was or what the resources were. And I was, I was afraid to go home and tell my family. And so I just, I was left to myself to Google, um, in my dorm room and find out what, what the options were out there. Um, and, um, and what I found were abortion facilities. So I made an appointment, um, for that Saturday because I, I was already bonding with my child. I was, you know, walking around campus and in my boyfriend's oversized sweatshirt. And, and I was, I was talking with her. Um, but I made an appointment and, um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I didn't, I just knew that, here was a place that said that they would help, right? And, you know, give me information or something. And so I made an appointment and they said, just go ahead and make an abortion appointment. So I, I made that, but, um, but I was just confused and lost. And, you know, I hadn't gotten any help in the health center. Um, I hadn't gotten any support or, you know, ideas about how to, how to continue on in college um, with a child or anything like that. Um, and so I just thought, well, here's, here's a place that can, that can help me. Um, and so I, I went in and, and it was, um, it was an overwhelming experience. It was a kind of a scary experience. It's one of those where you kind of just block it all out and, and go through the motions. Um, so, you know, I, I took the little pill, the pills that they handed me in a little cup and, um, and I went back and they, and they did an ultrasound the way they have to. Um, and I asked if I could see it. Um, and they said, no, you know, it's like, it's two feet if that from my, from my face, um, you know, if they just turned the screen, I could see and, you know, get the information that, that I was asking for, but they said no to that. And they just sent me on to the next room and, and I'm asking questions and they just, they won't give me any kind of answers or, or guidance or support or anything. They just, you know, shuffled me along this assembly line process. And so I was, um, I was on the table, um, the actual abortion table and, and suddenly I just realized that it was so wrong that I wasn't getting answers that, um, that they weren't, they weren't there to help me. Um, they were just there for their job. And so I said, you know, okay, keep the money. I, I, this is wrong for me. I'm just going to go, I'll figure this out. <laughs> I'll figure out how to, how to call up my mom and tell her. Um, but instead they, um, they held me down and forcibly aborted my child. And, um, and it's hard to, to express the, the trauma of that kind of experience. Um, I, I, it, I stayed in that, in that abortion clinic as long as I could, just because I, I couldn't really get up the, um, 
the drive, the energy, the the desire to want to get up and leave. And I knew that that was the last time that I was going to be in the same the same room, the same building as my baby, you know. And so um, it was really, really hard to leave. Um, but eventually I got back in the car and went back to campus and just stayed in bed for a week and tried to figure out how to go on. Um, and, and it took me a while. It was, a, it was kind of a long journey. But, um, but today I am really blessed to be able to advocate for human rights and for the human right to life. And it's because of what I had to live through, um, the cultural and the, the legal indifference to the ethical and moral realities concerning abortion violence and the harms that abortion inflicts on women and girls. Now, the entire spectrum of human right to life issues matters. Um, abortion is, is the preeminent issue, um, but it's also not the only issue. It's one issue on a spectrum of issues, um, a continuum of issues that addresses itself to the question of whether we're going to care for human persons and uplift them at every stage and at every age and in every circumstance, or whether we're going to embrace the toxic notion that the U.S. Constitution uh, and that justice is, is compatible with a killing power as a matter of law and policy. Well, that's a, a heartbreaking story. Thank you so much for, for sharing it with us. And I'm sorry, that's something you had to go through. Um, especially, you know, we know that this happens to women a lot and a lot more than we hear about, you know, and, and unfortunately, the abortion rights movement has, um, you know, really kind of papered over stories like this and oftentimes attack women who share these stories, you know, tried to claim that this never happens or uh, whatever else. But maybe you could speak a bit to how we as pro-lifers can support um, women who've had abortions and who suffer in the aftermath. And I think this is really a, a big responsibility we have and not something we necessarily speak about a lot, although there are, of course, ministries dedicated to this. Yeah. You know, I have spoken with so many women. Um, I've represented women who were in similar circumstances. Um, even to me, um, you know, sometimes they share that they were able to somehow, you know, when they changed their mind, they were able to to get out. Um, but so many were not able to. And um, but no matter no matter what the circumstances of that abortion um, that they may have gone through were, you know, abortion it, it takes something from all of us, um, and, and it's it's a loss. Uh, and people react to that in very different ways. You know, sometimes they. Um, they just, the pain, um, it's almost like a pendulum swing. You know, they, they just kind of, um, harden themselves to it and, and try to get past it somehow. Um, and then other people, they just are immediately ready to, to seek out for help and support and counseling. In my case, um, yeah, I went back to the dorm room and, and I, I just tried to recover from everything that had just happened. Um, and a few weeks later, um, I was on the phone with my mom and, and she was telling me the story about one of her coworkers who had a daughter who had just gotten pregnant as, um, as a teenager. I think she was maybe 16 at the time. And, um, and you know, she's, she's my mom. She knows me. <laughs> um, and so I, I just, I, I, I'm sure I was acting a little bit weird. And so I, I said something like, you know, yeah, a lot of people getting pregnant recently. Right. And, um, and she just paused and she said, Catherine, is there anything you'd like to tell me? And I spilled the whole story out because I'm a mama's girl and, and how could I not? Um, so I told her the whole thing and, um, 
And, and the more I've thought about it over the years, the more I've um, I've realized a few things. First of all, I so I'm just so very grateful for her response in that moment. It was so loving. Um, as I knew it would have been, of course, it was just so loving and so supportive. And, you know, of course she was, you know, disappointed and she was sad for me and, and, and she mourned the loss of her grandchild, but, you know, she just, she said, okay, what do you need? And, um, and one of the things that, that happened next is that she found me counseling, which it turned out was at a pregnancy center. Um, I, it took me a long time to figure that out. Um, but it was at a pregnancy center where we care for women um, across the full spectrum, you know, um, during pregnancy, of course, but also after birth, we care for women, um, you know, with, with diapers and baby clothes and formula and, and all those other things that, um, that babies need. We care for women with parenting skills and job training, housing if they need it, um, you know, so many different ways that, um, that the pregnancy center movement is, um, is really stepping into the gap for these women and these families. Um, so I'm, I'm just so grateful for my mom. I'm grateful for the pregnancy centers. And, um, and I just, I think about what our response should be when someone comes and tells us that, um, that they're pregnant or that they're, um, or that they know someone or, you know, they're in that situation. And, um, and I think back to the, the workers at that, that college health clinic and, um, and you could see in their eyes that they wanted to say something that there was something, that there was emotion, that there were thoughts, um, but they never did. I have no idea what they were thinking. I can only imagine. And I, I wish that they had. I wish that they had just um, put their arm around me, um, maybe held my hand and said, not just, you know, there's a phone if you need to call someone, which is what they, what they said to me, but just, you know, hey, let's talk about this. Let's talk about you know, options and solutions. Let's talk about what, um, what your classes may look like. Let's talk about what your meal plan and your housing, of course, may look like, you know, here's what the university has set up for you as different, you know, options and whatever, whatever would make sense in your situation, we can make that work. And, um, and just, you know, you're, you're strong enough and you can do this, you know, you're not alone. Other people have been in this situation and, um, and we're here with you. We'll get you through it. Let's call who you need to call together. You know, you need to call your mom. Let's call her together. Uh, and that's something that all of us can do. All of us can be that person for the young person in need um, in, a, in a situation that they didn't imagine that they would ever be in. We can sit there and listen to them. And even if we don't have all the answers, even if we have none of the answers, we can still, um, we can be that sounding board. We can be that support system, that resource, and we can find the answers together. And, and that's something that, um, that I work to do even now. Uh, I was just on the phone a week or two ago with, um, with a friend of mine, um, up in New Jersey who was, um, is on, on the school board and was saying, what can we do to support, pregnant and parenting students in our school. And so I just brainstormed. I came up with ideas like, okay, let's, let's try giving, you know, credit for childcare, you know, give them time to care for their children, you know, train them up a little bit and give them some, some school credit for that. They're learning, they're learning how to care for someone else. And that's uh, one of the most important life skills you can have. Um, but I also said, just listen to the kids you know, just well, let's have round tables, you know, order some pizza in, get some kids in the room and keep doing it. Keep asking them, you know, what would help you? 
And, um, and I think that's the most important thing is just to listen. Catherine, as I as I listen to your story, um, what strikes me is that, you know, for many women, if not most women, you know, they don't shout their abortion. Um, they actually uh, regret their abortion. They feel that they had been pressured into it, either, you know, literally physically coerced, you know, held down um, while their child is aborted, or just socially, culturally, economically pressured uh, into thinking that abortion is their only option or their best option. And, and um, the work that you do, the work that AUL does, the work that, you know, the 3,000 pregnancy resource centers, and, and just so much more of the pro-life movement um, does to try to um, empower women to choose life, to try to support women in choosing life. It's just so vitally important. You can't, I can't overstate that. But but I wanted to also ask you about another um, personal story, uh, if you're okay um, sharing this. Um, and I know you've written about it, but if you don't want to talk about it, that's that's totally understandable as well. But you know, in the third chapter of the book, um, Alexandra and I, we document um, what we've referred to as lethal discrimination in the womb, and we look at how you know a- abortion always harms many people. Right? It kills the unborn child. It harms the mothers. It harms broader society. But there are certain segments of our population that are at um, heightened risk uh, for abortion. Um, you know, more black babies in New York City are aborted than are born. Millions of girls are missing from our globe because of um, uh, discrimination on the basis of sex in the womb. And then likewise, uh, people who are diagnosed with disabilities in the womb uh, face a much elevated risk of of abortion. And this is where you see those just Orwellian headlines uh, with things like, you know, Iceland has eradicated Down syndrome as if they found a cure for the genetic disorder, when in reality what they've done is they've eradicated people with Down syndrome. And I know you, you've had an experience like this. I, I believe it was, it was with your um, your fourth child. Um, could, could you share, um, uh, you know, what, what that experience was like um, and just, you know, the decision you made and, you know, how, how your daughter is um, today and, you know, what what listeners can learn from that experience? Yeah. Um, you know, when I was um, when I was expecting my now seven year old, I, I went to the doctor, you know, I, I was going in for a normal checkup, a normal ultrasound. And, um, and it was one of those ultrasounds where they say, you know, give us a few minutes, you know, the, the doctor will be in shortly. And, you know, (laughs) there's so much fear that, that goes through your mind at that point. You know, you're just, you're waiting for the doctor. You're terrified. You know, what, what news is coming? And in my case, it was the news that my little girl was at a significantly elevated risk of a trisomy disorder. The, the most well-known trisomy disorder, of course, is Down syndrome. Um, this is a, a different one. It was trisomy 18. But it's, it's, it's a life-limiting and sometimes life-ending trisomy disorder. And, and like you said, you know, some countries over the last few years, they, they've claimed that they've, you know, practically eradicated conditions like Down syndrome. But what they do is they just abort every child that's diagnosed with it. And so my doctor in that moment said that I should consider abortion um, and was was kind of pushing it on me, was saying, you know, this isn't the kind of life you want someone to lead. You know, it, you should just consider, you know, trying again um, with some different child. I, I knew that there was no way that I could do that. And, and even just hearing that, it was it, 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 it was sickening. Um, it was heartbreaking. It was appalling, but it just, it made me feel absolutely sick that the person that I had trusted myself and my children and, and our medical care and our lives to 
was um, was treating our life as just you know something to abort away and and try again. Um, but you know, I thought about about changing doctors at that point. And I thought, no, I really want to witness to this, um, to this medical team. I really want to, um, just, you know, provide an example, um, even in the face of adversity. And so I, I carried on and, and further tests were a little bit more promising, but, um, but when, but when I actually, you know, gave birth, it was just so clear that the, those early tests were wrong, that even though the, the risk had been quite elevated, elevated enough that I remember I, I spent that first weekend afterwards, I, I just, I, I downloaded a medical textbook and, and read it all, everything I could find about trisomy, but they had gotten it wrong. My, my, my daughter was born just as healthy as could be, you know, no trisomy condition at all. And, you know, she's now seven years old, um, very active, a little bit sassy, um, but just the sweetest little girl you could imagine. She has curly hair and, um, and her favorite thing is giving hugs. Well, probably her second favorite thing. Her favorite thing is maybe unicorns. Um, but it's, it's up there. Those are the top two. Um, and so what this taught me was that, you know, even in the face of adversity, um, we can go on, we can provide an example. Um, it also taught me just firsthand how those fetal diagnoses and prognoses, they are not a guarantee uh, but so many women are directed towards abortion based on those results. And um, and so many lives have been lost based on those results. I think about, about you know, the, the millions who've been lost. And, and I wonder, you know, what kind of lives they would have led if we had just given them a chance. You know, however, however that prognosis turned out, they deserved a chance at life just like you or me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story as well. And, um, you know, we do talk a bit about kind of uh, the the report. I know that we mentioned from the New York Times um, a couple of months back showing that more than 90 percent of prenatal testing for more severe or what might be called um, lethal fetal diagnoses are inaccurate. And, and many, many parents choose abortion as a result of getting those types of, of results. And you mentioned, too, I found it striking what you said about your doctor and how you chose to stick with him um, because we have a, a whole chapter about how abortion has perverted the healthcare field and the medical system and how uh, corrupting it is to treat this lethal act, this, you know, killing, that's all it is. It's not healthcare, but to treat that as if it's some kind of healthcare and, and what that does to medicine. And I know you at AUL focus a lot on, on other life issues. It's not just about abortion and how this kind of mindset of some human lives are expendable. And, and this might be a form of medicine um, in this twisted worldview, how that extends to other, um, other issues. But we could turn a bit, I think, to um, the future of the pro-life movement uh, in a bit. But could could you speak first to how um, how we got to this moment? You know, it's it's a huge deal that Roe was overturned. There's a lot of work to do, of course, and I'm I'm sure you you can speak to that and what AUL is doing on that front um, later on. But what's your your kind of take on how we got here and and the work that the pro-life movement did to bring us to Dobbs? Yeah, and, and just following on quickly to what you just said. Um, you know, every single child and every single human being deserves our love and our care and not just utilitarian, heartless eradication. Uh, and, and something that you said made me think of, of a stat that I just recently heard, um, which is that 76% of women would choose life, would choose to parent, in fact, if their circumstances were different. And so you just think about how do we get to, to that point where we can 
get to the heart of the problem and get to the root of what causes abortion. You know, how do we, how do we fix that underlying issue? But, you know, when, when we talk about how we got here, um, it's been, it's been a long road. Uh, we can get into the, the intricacies of Roe v. Wade and abortion jurisprudence, but I think the key, especially since Roe's reversal, is to just understand that the so-called right to abortion was, from the very beginning, it was just totally fabricated. It was, it was pulled out of thin air. And, and Roe anchored this thin air right to abortion and the notion that the post-Civil War anti-slavery amendments, and specifically that an amendment whose purpose was to establish that all persons, um, black or white, really are persons, um, that somehow that anti-slavery era amendment, that it also conferred the right to abortion, um, that it conferred the right to killing. If you look at, um, at Joseph Delapin's magnum opus, Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History, it does so much to explain why the Roe Court simply didn't know what it was talking about. Um, and even worse, the ahistorical account that Roe conjured, um, it was belied by the reality that anti-abortion law was a reality throughout America in the 19th century, um, including when those anti-slavery amendments were passed. And we can even trace the law's hostility to the evil of abortion back as far as about the year 1200 in the common law. And so what the court did in Roe, it was, it was um, unhinged, really. They wanted a particular outcome. Um, they wanted to normalize abortion and its violence and its self-harm. And they relied on serial means, fictitious histories, and, and on abortion activists' upside-down accounts of reality, and on research that wouldn't earn a passing grade in most graduate semesters. And so the result of all of that was half a century of killing, it was 63 million or more dead and a national crisis over abortion that Roe's reversal really only partially resolves. Um, now, as you know, it, after Roe, um, the issue was, was, was far from settled. Um, we kept bringing you know, cases, lawsuits up before the Supreme Court. Um, dozens of, of lawsuits going on at any given time in the lower federal courts. And the, the Supreme Court itself heard a case on abortion on average every two, two and a half years or so. So over and over and over, the Supreme Court was asked to revisit this issue. And time and again, we had hope that, that they would finally overturn Roe. Um, that we saw changing tests, changing guidelines, changing standards as they tried to justify the unjustifiable, um, as they tried to answer the legal scholars that for 50 years of legalized abortion, uh, 49 years, didn't, didn't get it to 50, um, but for 49 years, legal scholars said, this is a terrible decision um, on both the left and the right. You know, pro-choice and pro-life scholars said, this is a terrible decision. It's not based in the Constitution. We don't know where they came up with this. They just, they made it up. Um, and so the court tried to address that. And Casey, for example, they, um, without being asked by anyone, by any party, they came up with a new test. And, um, and so instead of the trimester framework, they moved to a viability framework. And they just, they tried to keep it going in any way that they could. You just look at the last few years, 2016, Hellerstedt, 2020, June Medical Services. And even then they were they were arguing back and forth over the the Casey, the 1992 case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, um, undue burden standard. What constitutes an undue burden? Do we trust our lawmakers to have, you know, the community's best interests, women's best interests at heart? And and as um, as women and children were being used as um, almost as as you know ping pong balls here. 
um, as, as this went back and forth over the years. Um, we just kept hoping that finally we would see the case that Casey wasn't. And um, just a few weeks ago, we finally got that answer. We finally saw a Supreme Court with the courage and the bravery and, um, and the wisdom and the honesty to recognize the harm that Roe brought to our nation and to, to be willing to wait in there and fix it. And so with Roe and Casey finally gone, what's next? Uh, what are the battleground states um, as you kind of look at the map? You know, what are the policies that, you know, we need to be promoting? What are the legal, the next legal challenges, uh, the next legal battles that we need to be engaged in? You know, how are you thinking about next steps? Because, you know, overturning Rowan Casey isn't isn't the end goal. That was just a necessary precondition for the ultimate objective. And, you know, your your quoting of Father Newhouse was exactly right. Every life protected in law, every life welcomed uh, in life. You know, so how are you thinking about, you know, the next frontiers? Yeah, you know, as we've discussed, abortion was not outlawed by Dobbs. Um, it, it simply sent the issue back to the states. So as you said, overturning Roe was a necessary precondition uh, for the next steps, but it is by no means the end of our of our road here, you know, tragically. Uh, abortion in some of its forms um, has been abolished in some states, and we're, we're having to fight there harder than ever before as we see pushback, as we see lawsuits being brought, as we're having to defend laws that in some cases have existed for um, a few years or a few decades, in some cases for far, far longer than that. Um, but, you know, but these states, these pro-life states, the top of AUL's life list, um, are doing everything that they can to defend those laws. Um, and that's about a third of states so far. Um, other states, states like California and New York and Illinois and Oregon and states like that, they are, they're trying to become more pro-abortion than ever before. They're embracing abortion as a law and policy tool, and they're using taxpayer funds to promote it, to pay for it, um, to subsidize it. Um, and, and I think what we need to remember here is that abortion is incompatible with constitutional justice, because in the same way that, that our rights and responsibilities to each other existed prior to any government acknowledging them, uh, neither can any government deny fundamental rights, like the human right to life, by claiming constitutional silence or indifference. You know, a constitution that purports to exist in contradiction to reality, it, it's no constitution at all. And so we have to continue to fight, to clarify as a matter of constitutional law that abortion is unjust and it must be explicitly abolished. And so we're also advancing a constitutional amendment to that end to provide crystal clarity because the bottom line here is that Dobbs, it's reversed Roe, but Roe's impact um, continues to be felt and the violence and the self-harm that it brought into American life, it's continuing to claim lives and futures every single day until we achieve abolition in some shape or form. Um, and so, you know, we see, we see for now states going their own way on abortion. And we see some, some extreme pro-abortion states um, but, you know, already we've seen so many states embracing the human right to life in various ways. Um, so it's kind of a kind of a two steps forward, one and a half steps back situation. You know, right now, about two thirds of Americans still live in what are effectively pro-abortion states where abortion violence is going to be worse than ever before. Um, but the repudiation of the flawed logic and injustice of Roe, it was a critical step 
um, for principle. And so now we have to put into even greater practice what we've already been doing for decades as a pro-life movement, loving people and providing them every necessary resource, not only to choose life, but to achieve a life of thriving. That's a, a beautiful goal. And we do, as you put it, have, have quite a ways to go um, to get there. But I'm wondering if you could help our listeners um, and us certainly to um, shape our, our thought on exceptions to pro-life laws. And um, I don't know when exactly we'll be airing this particular episode, but on the day that we're recording, I just published a you know multiple thousand word piece collecting all the various texts of medical emergency exceptions and definitions of abortion as it pertains to ectopic pregnancy or treatment for miscarriage, because the, the lies and the misinformation are just rampant right now. And I think it's very telling that the, the main thing abortion supporters want to talk about is how pro-life laws are going to you know harm women in medical emergencies. They don't want to talk about why they want to have abortion legal through nine months, right? You'd think they'd have some kind of affirmative case to make, but they don't. Um, but I'm wondering if you could could speak a little bit to that. You know, um, it seems to be the case that that all pro-life laws do have the appropriate exceptions in place for these types of emergencies. And then on top of that, how should we think about things like um, exceptions for rape or incest? Yeah, um, I think um, I would I would first point you to um, to an op-ed that I just published with Dr. Christina Francis um, of American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Um, it's published in Newsweek, and um, and it's about uh, it's about those exceptions. Uh, the title of it, in fact, is "Yes, Doctors Can Still Save Pregnant Women's Lives Without Abortion." Um, you know, they also just published a white paper on this issue. Um, all of these these articles that are just fear mongering, um, the the articles that predict rising maternal mortality rates and you know abortion restrictions, um, preventing legitimate medical care for um, for ectopic pregnancies or miscarriages or stillbirth or anything like that, and um, and these doctors that are saying that you know that they don't know if if they can you know, perform a DNC in the case of a, of a miscarriage because of abortion laws. Um, it, it, it's, it's at best a misunderstanding of the facts. Um, at worst, it's a, it's a deliberate distortion of the truth because the reality is that a post-row world is so much brighter for women and their children because the dignity of, of all human life is respected and every human being can receive real health care and not just um, the band-aid of abortion. Um, the, the truth of the matter is that abortion is not necessary to treat pregnancy complications. Um, according to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, an induced abortion is a procedure intended to terminate a pregnancy so that it does not result in a live birth. So it, it really is about the intent. The purpose is to end the life of a preborn child. And from a medical standpoint, that's never necessary. When you're talking about miscarriage management, you're not ending a life. You're just removing an embryo or a fetus that's already deceased. Now, there are some difficult pregnancy complications that may require a doctor to separate the mother from the child, but that's not the same as an abortion. You know, even Planned Parenthood acknowledges that managing an ectopic pregnancy is not an abortion. Um, and so every, every law in every state allows for true health care. Um, they recognize the difference between abortions and procedures that, that treat pregnancy complications. And none of the dozen plus conditional laws that have gone into effect to enact abortion restrictions um, since Dobbs 
none of them prevent necessary care for women in a life-threatening emergency or for ectopic um, pregnancy um, uh, treatment or for any kind of miscarriage management, even if the methods used for them or the tools used for them may be the exact same as those as those used in an abortion. You know, that's that's totally possible. But it is. Um, but all of that is allowed under the current state of our law, and that's um, that's something that has never been um, has never really been um, been at issue. Um, so I, I think that it's important for all Americans to just educate themselves on that and understand that that's what we're talking about here. Um, then you also brought up rape and incest, and when it comes to um, to rape and to incest, they are um, both rape and um, an abortion um, are both a symptom of the same violent ideology that says that we can violate others to achieve our own goals and to fulfill our own needs. And, and I work alongside people who have experienced the absolute worst forms of sexual violence, and they understand that transcending these ills and overcoming them starts by refusing to perpetuate or to justify further violence. Um, in fact, studies have shown that 73% of pregnant rape victims choose life. And so just as we were talking about um, sort of a, a culture of death, a culture of Roe, and um, and the pressure that, um, that comes upon women um, just from um, not just partners, of course, not just the, the medical professionals, um, from family members, from friends, from institutions like schools or workplaces, um, like perhaps Citibank, which is now paying for, for women to travel to um, to states um, uh, where they can get an abortion if they're if they're working or living in a pro life state, um, but you know, but also women who who've been raped and find themselves pregnant in that um, in that tragic situation, they feel that pressure because of all the talk about exceptions, because of all the talk about um, about well, if if you've been raped, then you know, of course, you might want you might want an abortion, and um, and so they feel pressure based on that, even though. The majority of women um, who've been raped do choose life, um, and so I think that um, that all too often nowadays, um, rape and incest are being used as a as a political and as a psychological bludgeon to advance the real goal, which is abortion any time and for any reason. And I think we should be talking to sexual assault victims because we're just jumping to the wrong conclusions based on fear. And based on prejudice, without actually talking to these women, and, and we should be trusting women. We should be trusting women that there isn't some one-size-fits-all solution to serious problems like rape. And we should be trusting women instead of stripping them of genuine choice by pushing extreme pro-abortion uh, views. And and really, the notion that um, that that a woman or or a young girl. I would be better off in the hands of an abortionist than in the care of her family doctor is proven false by the real history of abortion, which is absolutely rife with stories of abortion centers that failed or refused to report perpetrators even when state law required it and then returned the girl back into the hands of her rapist. No questions asked. We've seen case after case in states across our nation, um, pro-life states, pro-choice states, uh, you know, Klopfer, Ulrich Klopfer in Indiana, who lost his license after failing to report hundreds of cases of statutory rape. 
um, there's a young girl in, um, in Birmingham, Alabama in 2014, um, 14-year-old little girl who walked into Planned Parenthood pregnant with her third child, and they aborted her child, no questions asked, sent her right back into that same situation that she was in that we can only assume was abusive. And then four months later, she comes in again, fourth known pregnancy, and again, they abort her child, no questions asked. You know, we, we're dealing with women who, who've been violated. And I understand that most people are uncomfortable dealing with rape victims, but abortion abandons a woman. It re-victimizes her. Abortion says that a woman can't succeed with a child. And so instead of promoting these, these sexist policies, we need to be empowering women with the social net and the resources to be able to choose life and to choose to carry a child despite you know, any grave injustice that they may have suffered. That is um, so well said, um, you know, both on the medical care and on the um, uh, care for women who have been sexually assaulted. And uh, in particular, you know, I've, I've read the Newsweek piece that you did with um, Dr. Francis, and I've read Alexandra's piece in National Review, and they're just, both of them are just so um, helpful in combating the lies. And I think they are intentional, bad faith arguments that abortion activists are putting forward. Um, and it's just really really, really helpful um, to the pro-life movement to have you guys clarifying and just, you know, explaining what reality is both on the ethics side, the medicine side, and the, the legal side. We're, we're running out of time. Um, and so we always like to ask, you know, as a last question of, of, of guests, you know, give us marching orders. Um, you know, you're the president of, you know, one of the largest, oldest, most prominent uh, pro-life organizations in the world. Um, what do you suggest listeners do? Uh, what's your advice to listeners in, in terms of how they can make a difference uh, to the future of the pro-life cause? You know, our vision and our mission at Americans United for Life, it remains the same as it's ever been, um, advancing the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. Um, what we're seeing now is that the states are more important than ever before. And that doesn't let the federal level off the hook. <laughs> There's so much work to be done at the federal level. And we have such a, you know, wonderful, amazing lawmakers who are um, who are stepping up to the plate, and they're they're just facing this head on, and they are ready to stand for life. Uh, but at the state level, we are empowered. That that cap that prevented us from really protecting women and children, from really getting to the heart and the root of the problem that women face in our in our nation. And um, and trying to solve those those core issues so that we can um, empower women and and encourage them and support them um, and, and just lead them to thrive. Um, that cap that prevented us from doing all that that's gone. And so we have more opportunity at the state level than we have had in um, in decades. And so there's a lot that we need to do. We need to be standing for for law at the state level. We need to be pushing our lawmakers to um, to pass good protective laws, and we need to be pushing our administrations to enforce those laws. All those good laws on the books, it doesn't help us that much if we aren't enforcing the laws that we have in place. So that's absolutely critical. Um, so we need to be involved in our government. We need to be educating ourselves and tracking. But I think most importantly, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, and it's just standing for life in our own lives in whatever way that looks like. We all have a role to play in the pro-life movement. 
You know, some of us uh, are authors. Some of us are, are publishing books on, um, on the human right to life. Some of us are lawyers. Some of us are doctors. Um, some of us are medical professionals um, or, you know, uh, running a pregnancy care center or something like that. Some of us are, are those sidewalk warriors who are just out there praying and sidewalk counseling um, and just being that last line of defense before a woman um, makes a decision that she may regret for the rest of her life. Um, some people may be praying at home um, or, you know, or supporting with, you know, their time, talent and treasure and in any number of other ways. Um, but all of us have a role to play. And I have always thought that, you know, no matter what I do in, in my professional life or, or anything else, maybe the most important thing I can do is just being a safe place so that if there's a young woman in my life who, um, who finds out that she's pregnant, uh, or maybe a young man and, and he's in a relationship and, um, and he just found out that he's a dad, um, that people know that they can come to us. And that even if we don't have all the answers, that we'll be with them, we'll be a listening ear, we'll support them, we'll work with them to find solutions. Um, that's the most important thing that we can do. Because as I said, 76% of women say that they would parent, not just choose life, but even parent if, um, if their circumstances were different. You know, we can help them get to that point. We can be the sounding board. Um, I, I speak across the country and, and I'm so privileged to meet, um, you know, thousands of people every year um, who all have different, different circumstances, different life journeys that brought them um, to the place where we're in a room together. Um, but I always stay after a talk. I, I always stay after, um, after whatever event that I, I'm at, because usually there's some people who come up to me. And, um, and they'll start sharing their story and, and you can tell just sometimes immediately, you know, they'll just come up and the, they have this look in their eyes and they just, they just want to hug me. And, and so we just, we hug it out and, um, and then sometimes they share that, that they had an abortion or two abortions or three abortions, you know, sometimes decades ago. And there's just such a wound for them. Um, sometimes they, they haven't shared it with anyone else in their life. Sometimes their husband doesn't know. Um, and so we, we talk about, you know, maybe, maybe sharing it with their husband and sometimes I get to, to keep up with them afterwards and, um, and they share how that went and, um, and how just that transparency has been so healing and, and such a, a boon for their relationship. And then sometimes I'll, I'll meet people who are going through something themselves, um, and they just, they need support or resources or, you know, who do I tell and how, and I just walk them through that. But, um, but it, it, I just think if we, if we're that, um, that listening ear for the people in our lives, for those young people who need us, um, then that, that's maybe the most important thing that any of us can do to stand for life. Well, thank you so much for that, those, those inspiring marching orders and for all the work you've done uh, for the pro-life movement, both at AUL and, and before that too, um, and for your witness. We really are grateful for it. Uh, and thank you for joining us today to talk through all these important issues. Absolutely a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Life After Dobbs. Ryan and I are co-authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which you can order now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. This podcast has been sponsored by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can learn more about our work at our website, eppc.org, including our Life and Family Initiative. <laughs>